Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 79 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday morning, June 20th. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek, and Bobby, it's a girl! It's a girl! Yay! Congratulations, my I mean, friend! We, I mean, we knew it was going to be a girl. That, that, that part was not surprising. It's still super exciting. Yeah. Two, two daughters, Steve. Two daughters. Abu el-Banat, as we've talked about before. You and I are both. Fathers of daughters. Here we are. You are catching up to me. You're two thirds of the no, way no, there. No, 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 no. I'm done. I'm conceding. <laughs> Come I, on. Karen and I, Karen and I, are officially uh, conceding the race to the Chesneys. All right. Well, we are super, super excited for you and Karen. Congratulations. Thank I'm you. so happy everybody's uh, feeling well in the circumstances. Everyone's great. We're just tired, a little tired. Um, Maddie, our, our first daughter, is uh, uh, already talking about her baby. Her baby. <laughs> of course. So, you know, things it seems like things are going according to plan. That's fantastic. But, well, you know, but even though she was just born two days ago, I, I sort of took one look at what was going on in national security law land. I was like, uh-oh. I feel like a lot of our, you know, we've got sustaining members. We have new members. We've got all sorts of uh, activity in the realm of national security law that feels like a, just a gift to you to come in for a little distraction. You've come to campus, and we're up in the studio, Woo-hoo. also known as your office. Indeed. On a rainy, unseasonably temperate it Austin It feels very day. tropical in Austin this week. Like It's tropical wet, moisture. Wet, it's, humid, you know, muggy, like Miami. It is literally tropical moisture from the Gulf that's come in. When hence, the, hence why it feels tropical. The high pressure will be back, and we'll be back to our usual dry, hot ways. How's your uh, How's your World Cup bracket doing? Um, you know, actually, I feel pretty good about my. I didn't I didn't fill out a complete bracket. I just have my mm. sort of sense of. Who Do you have the Americans it. in the final four? Oh, I. <laughs> you know, I. So we were talking about this earlier. Um, do you have a with America not participating? Who's your team? Oh well, have you seen all these Volkswagen commercials? Um, yeah, yeah. Were they the, Were they compete? root for us? Root for us? Yeah, I thought that was right. pretty awesome. I think there's no question. What, who, which team every self-respecting American soccer fan should be rooting for in the World Cup? Uh, whoever's playing against Russia. Okay. Who else they should be rooting for? <laughs> okay, I don't know. Who? Iceland. I, well, what about, uh, so I will tell you. Iceland, that come I, on. I appreciate the underdog Cinderella 10% story. 10% of the bloody country got on a plane and flew to Russia for the World Cup. 10% of the country. Yeah, but Mexico had an earthquake caused by fans celebrating. How great okay. was that? Mexico did have an earthquake caused by fans celebrating, but Mexico is also the country where U.S. players have urine thrown on them. So I'm not. No, oh, I'm I don't not, know. I didn't know about that. Oh yeah. That. So I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not sure how I feel about the well, whole. Well, you've complicated. I was going to go with the support the neighbor narrative, and now you've really made that hard. All right. I'm going. Uh, how about I'm going to go for? Uh, well, you tell me. Just give me somebody besides Iceland. That's Senegal. too trendy. Senegal. They had a great win. They had a great yeah. win. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't really have a dog in this fight, as you can see. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I love, I love. I mean, I love World Cup. I, it's too bad the Americans aren't in it. So, and because otherwise, I think it would be getting the the, the attention it really oh, deserves. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree. Um, speaking of things that that aren't getting the attention they deserve, though, I mean, we've had by my count like fifteen major litigation developments since our last episode, which was just a week ago. It's really amazing. Why not do? I'll do and, a and quick. Like, and none of them. Just none of them from the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's an, thank goodness, right? I, by the way, I was so pleased for you that at, at the moment that uh, your daughter was being born, you were not hit with the outcome in Dalmazi so Karen, or with Carpenter. So, so, so Maddie, Maddie showed up around seven forty-two on Monday morning, which is eight forty-two Eastern. About an hour and twenty minutes later, Karen looks over at me and she says. All right, if you want to check really quickly to see if Dalmazi came out, <laughs> you can look at your phone. Oh, that is really great. <laughs> I, actually, Heather and I talked about this and pondered whether or not you would ask for and or receive permission to... Uh, I did not ask for, 
but I did receive. You are a smart man. Um, and once I saw that the first opinion was from Justice Sotomayor, I was like, okay, good. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Back to ba- back to baby. Well, here's the run of the show for today, and it's a lot, and we'll we'll try to get through this all in our usual uh, overly long, but not too long. I, I was waiting for you to to make a usually incorrect prediction about how. Oh, yeah, we get under an hour. Not today. No way. Um, so first, under the heading of lethal force, we're going to talk about a really important decision, uh, Zidane v. Trump, which will soon be recaptioned as uh, Kareem v. probably either uh, what, Haspel or, or CIA or yeah. something, or maybe United States. You D- tell uh, me. District court decision. District court decides that? Uh, I'm, I'm adding oh, <laughs> Right. It was a decision by Judge Collier. We're, we're not going to go into the details here. Let me just say, we've got a really important decision about the targeting, the alleged targeting, I should say, Indeed. of an American citizen as well as another person. And, and a rare example of a case surviving a motion to dismiss. Right. No, this is, a really, this is a really big deal. Yep. This is a break with the Al-Awlaki yep. litigation before it. We have some interesting developments in military detention land, including the hearing that was supposed to be happening right now in Doe versus Mattis. I know. Sustaining member it's, getting pushed to July... 13. Come on. Oh, they're, they're just, you're killing me, Smalls. All right. Um, or you're killing me, Chuckkin. Chuckkin. <laughs> so Doe v. Mattis is back and yet not back. Um, We've got some National Defense Authorization Act discussion to sort of talk about stuff that was in there and then not in there. And then is not in there. <laughs> we'll talk about uh, a, a real quick note on a few Gitmo transfer-related things because you can't talk about the NDAA without some Gitmo transfer stuff. Well, you could, but then it would just be boring. Yeah, it would be boring. Uh, we'll talk about uh, Fourth Circuit decision on banc denial. In Hami Doolin, I Shocking. think that's, that's exactly what we expect. I think that's about happen. how long we're going to say. Yeah, we may, we may not need to come back to that one. Um, and we'll just note, for just as a sort of a placeholder, Carol Rosenberg had an article noting the possibility of uh, prep work for potential arrival of new detainees at Guantanamo. We'll, we'll mention something about Insert that. Insert visual eye roll. Do <laughs> um, uh, you want to talk a bit about um, the uh, AQIM, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, as an associated force yeah, under it, the AUMF? And you know what? Actually, you know where that question. conceptually that belongs with Zaydan v. Trump because those agree. are both lethal force I agree. Uh, so I would move that up in our yep. little outline. I agree. Um, we have some interesting developments in military commission land, including, Bobby, a, a fascinating district court decision on Monday by Judge Lambert in the habeas case by Chief Guantanamo Military Commission Defense Counsel John Baker against uh, Judge Spath. Unbelievable. Um, we got a lot of judges yes. involved in this one. Um, and by the way, Judge Lambert, UT alum extraordinaire. Hook him, Judge Lambert. Um, and 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 it's. A, I mean, well, I'll save the punchline when we get there. It is a fascinating decision that I think is is really interesting and in some deeply important respects, I think, wrong. But we'll interesting. There. Well, I'm going to be uh, learning a lot from you because <laughs> I have not yet read it. We also have Judge but Pohl, have. speaking of the commission. I actually, I did read it. We, yeah, um, I'm sure you did. We have Judge Pohl. Uh, schedule, I had I had iPad in left hand and baby in right hand. It was a perfect setup. <laughs> I wish you had a picture of that. Um, Judge Pohl, well, no, because Karen was sleeping. Um, oh, okay. We had uh, Judge Pohl issue a, a preliminary case scheduling order for the 9-11 trial, which suggests that we're going to be here for a long time. It's, you know, um, so Episode 526 of the National Security Law Podcast. Last night I took the family uh, to go see Incredibles 2. Ah. And during the previews at the, the Alamo Drafthouse, they, you know, they show all kinds of funny older stuff. And I guess their summer series, they're going to show never-ending story. <laughs> well, uh, if they ever do a sequel, it can star the military commission's case against the 9-11 defendants. And then we also, I just have to take a, a little shot at our friends in the Defense Department who, in the litigation over whether Amar al-Baluchi is allowed to publicize some of his artwork, thought it would be a good idea to cite the World War II internment case here by Ashi versus United States. 
All right. Well, we will definitely talk about. Now, was that a DOD? Yeah, it was a DOD brief. It was a DOD brief, yes, not uh, not DOJ, because it's still in, in the trial court. Interesting. All right, right, so, well, so DOD handles litigation yeah. in the commissions themselves and in the Court of Military Commission Review. It's only once you get to the D.C. Circuit that uh, DOJ gets on board. All right. Well, the power to wage war is the power to wage war successfully. However, there are However, other the, cases right, that you say. can cite. <laughs> However, the power to cite here by Oshie is the power to cite it unsuccessfully. Oh, that's brilliant. You uh, know, if, ooh, if, the po- if we didn't already have an episode title, it's the a power girl. to cite here by Oshie. Yeah, yeah. yeah All right. Um, we're going to talk a bit about, speaking of terrorism, uh, Terrorism prosecutions, we're going to flip over to civilian court where there are a couple of interesting things going on, including Judge Casey Cooper's denial of the mo- of the motion for rehearing of the Abu Qatala case. Um, you have some updates on recent material support prosecutions. Also, an interesting Bobby New Leak case yep. involving the CIA officer who allegedly leaked um, oh, Vault 7. Yep. Right to WikiLeaks. Yeah. So, and, and there's an, and actually last week there was also a sentencing here in Texas in a uh, um, unauthorized withhold, or accessing of your or what what was the right description of it when you you got national defense information? Uh, uh, unauthorized uh, retention. Retention. Retention is uh, yes. the phrase I'm looking for. All go. right. So we'll we'll do a quick little wow. recap of it's that. Like, it's like I never left. <laughs> civil litigation is also keeping us busy. Ugh. So pivoting over to the civil suit side. Uh, two interesting two interesting developments. One in the Third Circuit on Monday, an interesting discussion of the suspension clause and undocumented immigrants. And this um, is right up your alley. In, a little bit. In not necessarily following what you think should be done, but a topic you've been following closely. Yep. And we also have uh, Judge Brinkema in the Al Shamari Abu Ghraib torture case ruling from the bench on Friday. Bobby denying uh, the renewed motion to dismiss by the military contractor defendants based upon the Supreme Court's recent decision in the Jesner case. Yeah, I went digging and digging, you know, looking for the opinion before finally realizing that was a bench ruling yep. and uh, yep. you know, opinion to follow. Um, isn't that why we have Alex? <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Um, all right. And then uh, we have a, a brief SCOTUS update because there isn't much to say because we're still waiting for, I mean, Carpenter and the travel ban and, you know, that, that weird little Dalmazi case. Well, you know, it, it's getting close. It's June 20th. There's 14 opinions to go. I and guess there are two, be There soon. are two scheduled decision days, uh, tomorrow and next yeah. Monday. I suspect we're going to have at least two more, although it remains to be seen which two those are. Something tells me uh, Carpenter is going to be a lot of opinions yes. and a lot of long opinions. Yes. Um, but I also want to talk briefly about two other developments. So the, the government uh, applied on Monday for a partial stay in the Chicago Sanctuary City case. I just want to talk a bit about okay. what, why that's relevant to things we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, and then I filed on Friday a new cert petition in the Hernandez cross-border shooting case. I'm biased, but might be interesting to talk briefly about that Absolutely. as well. Um, and then because, you know, that's just the courts, there's also Trumplandia, where we had the uh, much-awaited, long, ballyhooed OIG report on the 2016, oh my God. you know, Hillary email investigation. So I will forewarn you that I have, j- I just sort of decided, like, I don't, I'm just not going to spend time digging into Good. this. I have very few opinions. So I can just make stuff up and you won't even know. Exactly. Uh, and then we, we, we'd be remiss if we didn't spend at least a few minutes talking about President Trump's amazing centerpiece new domestic policy initiative, Bobby the Space Force. Space Force! Um, I, I was excited about this one because it, it's both uh, got packed within it uh, some interesting legal and policy issues. We'll say a little bit about that. Um, and I don't think we're going to have time for any frivolity, though I have every confidence that along the way you'll occasionally zing me for Kawhi Leonard going anti-spur. Bye, Kawhi. Ugh, get lost, Kawhi. Unless you decide to stay, in which case Kawhi's the best. <laughs> 
how quickly uh, do we root for the uniforms or the bodies in them? Right, that's the classic question of modern sports fans. I think you can have a you can have a default position that is subject to being overcome by events of the bodies within them. All right, so listen, we got a lot to do, so let's dive in. Uh, Zidane versus Trump. Who is who? Who are these plaintiffs, and what the heck is going on? Okay, so so there's two plaintiffs that have filed the civil suit: Zidane and Kareem. Zidane is, uh, uh, I believe, a dual Pakistani Syrian citizen. He's an Al Jazeera journalist, pretty well-known journalist. Um, Kareem is from New York. He's an American citizen, but he's been living in, well, (laughs) I'm not sure I'm going to cheer for this guy, but- uh, I'm just cheering people from New York. Yeah, there you go. Um, There are plenty of criminals from New York. Well, this may or may not be one. Um, that's there's a, there's sort a, of part a, of the interesting issue here. There's a president from New York. We'll see if the Venn diagram overlaps. I'm definitely, definitely probably not going to cheer for the uh, <laughs> the named defendant, the soon-to-be-out-of-the-case defendant. Indeed. So uh, what's the deal with these guys? Uh, they both claim to – and let me back up and go back to uh, Kareem for a second. He's living. He's, he's with this – he's got a family now living in Syria. Um, right. Neither of these plaintiffs were actually killed in drone strikes. No. Zidon is a journalist who uh, interacts a lot with, with people who may be people who are associated with al-Qaeda, Islamic State, etc. Uh, and certainly Kareem does. Kareem's whole shtick is he's a journalist on the ground in Syria. Um, and he is definitely, by, you know, by his own account, very much hostile to the Assad regime, uh, is, is supportive of the idea that it is indeed a religious obligation to wage jihad against uh, the Assad regime, and he's interacted a lot and interviewed a lot, and, and critics say uh, provided a propaganda platform for jihadis. Uh, and so these guys both claim that they've been placed on the kill list. That is, they've been identified as people subject to the AMF who can be targeted if located in the right circumstances with actionable intelligence. And they're trying to get uh, injunctive relief and declaratory relief to prevent this. Uh, now, the uh, government moved to dismiss. We should maybe, Steve, say a little bit about the, the prehistory here where they're not the first ones and, and uh, Kareem's not the first American citizen to try to litigate in civilian court uh, the possibility the government's trying to kill them because Anwar al-Awlaki, the, uh, the famous uh, AQAP, both propagandist and uh, operational planner for external operations, uh, was an American citizen, and his father, mm-hmm. both before and after yep. the U.S. Uh, was trying to kill and then did kill Alaki, went to federal district court, yep. uh, two suits, both dismissed. Interestingly, one of them by the same judge yep. that, to, that in this case is sustaining Kareem's case. So, and indeed, so, and, and the relevant one I think you would agree is the pre- um, drone strike killing of a Lockheed suit because that's one that bears the most resemblance, right, to this case. Where um, in that case, the same judge, Judge Collier, relied upon a combination of standing and the political question doctrine. Oh, Judge Bates in that case. Oh, it was Bates. I'm sorry. Yeah. Collier was the damages exactly. suit. Exactly. See, yeah. pregnancy brain. Pregnancy brain on you. Um, so, <laughs> baby, so baby yeah, Bates, Bates is the one that had the attempt the political, to, to yeah. sort of, right. And, and Bates, it was a very narrow but very clear holding that the political question doctrine prevented him. From reviewing Alalaki's pre in, uh, in in you know pre enforcement, I put in quotes, right. challenge to his inclusion on this alleged list. So he he basically thought there were three fatal flaws. One was that Alalaki's father didn't have standing right. as on behalf of his son um, because for, his because unlike the classical next friend case like Doe, right, right. 
Anwar al-Awlaki was at liberty and was, yeah. in theory, in a position to proceed if he wanted to. And in various ways, Bates said this this is someone who had indicated his lack of interest in the U.S. legal system. Um, so the standing issue was sufficient on its own, but he had gone further and said what amounts to the same thing. He said political question doctrine itself and the idea of equitable discretion— yep in interpreting the uh, the Administrative Procedure Act as a vehicle as well. Um, either one, the lack of judicially manageable standards, the commitment of these issues of military and foreign affairs to the executive meant you couldn't adjudicate the case. So then Alalaki is later killed, and the father then brings an action after that fact, uh, seeking monetary damages under Bivens. And that one goes to Judge Collier mm-hmm. instead of Judge Bates, which is interesting in itself. Yeah. Uh, and she she did not uh, allow that to go forward. Although uh, although not although at least with regard to the Fourth Amendment, reached the merits um, and issued what I think is a deeply problematic merits holding that the fourth that that a targeted killing is not an unlawful is not a seizure. So she she ultimately dismisses this on the grounds that Bivens shouldn't be for better or worse shouldn't be extended to this circumstance to, her, to, to the Fifth Amendment claim. Right, so the, if I recall correctly, the Fourth Amendment claim, she said um, a targeted killing isn't a seizure, which I think is just wrong, and she dismissed the Fifth Amendment claim for, on Bivens. Ah, okay, so so that's where we stand. Along come the lawyers uh, working with uh, Zidane and Kareem. They decide, well, we're not going to try Bivens, which, uh, you know, for better or worse, is probably the, the right call there. So they're <laughs> not seeking monetary damages. They want injunctive relief, um, and, and that makes sense, right? Because like, he's not been killed yet, so what would your monetary damages be? So and even, even, I mean, even if there were a, a damages claim, I mean, so Mashal is the relevant precedent in the D.C. Circuit. And Mashal basically precludes any extraterritorial Bivens claim, even by a U.S. Right. citizen. So instead, they go back. The, the fundamental problem is they want to sue all the they want to sue the government and these government agencies. You have a sovereign immunity problem. You need a vehicle to get around that. True. In the parallel context of if these guys had been captured and were complaining that they were being subjected to military force in the form of detention, habeas. well, habeas is, is right there. No one really pauses to dwell on whether the government's sort of immune from suit. That's because there's a straight-up Fed court answer to that question, Professor Chesney. Exactly. I'm, it's I'm, not you're not suing the government in a habeas case. You're suing like the, the, the habeas is custodian. an officer. Habeas is an officer suit. Right. So uh, sorry, I'm just being nerdy. Yeah, no. Fed court's nerdism is always welcome. Nerdistry should be on I gotta display start at all Cindy, times. I got I got to start Cindy Young. So uh, they argue they have a variety of claims. They have a series of constitutional arguments, uh, more or less what you'd expect. Uh, although they throw in the First Amendment for good measure, but they've got a Fifth Amendment procedural due process claim. They they invoke. Fourth Amendment unreasonable seizure. They've got First Amendment claims about how this impacts their their ability to engage in expression or association. Uh, and then they have a, a whole host of uh, statutory claims. They've even got the executive order uh, on 12333 uh, banning assassination. They throw in the ICCPR Article <laughs> 6 right to life. Uh, I think, and actually, that's, that's bad judgment because not only is that so obviously not going to go anywhere in a U.S. court, but it just sort of, you know, Seems like you're just throwing stuff on the wall. But in any event, they, they invoke all these claims. You do you. You do you. They do it through the vehicle of the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, arguing at the first level, A, that the assignment of them, if it's true, to the kill list is an arbitrary and capricious decision. And, and they hinge that on the idea that the government did not follow or is not properly following the dictates the government itself has adopted under the presidential policy guidance or PPG on how you figure out who goes on, uh, who can be targeted. Um, and that's 
you know, that's not going to be a winner of an argument for various reasons. Uh, and then secondly, arguing that in any event, this is agency action contrary to law, and that's where they bring in the Constitution and the statutes and all the rest. So against that backdrop, government moves to dismiss, uh, and, and they uh, succeed as to Zaidan, the non-citizen. Um, and the reason Judge Collier gives for saying that he lacks standing is that his claim is too speculative. Mm-hmm. Uh, his claim is interesting because it's based on some Snowden leaked classified information. Um, suffice to say that there are media reports that indicated that he was named in a way that suggests that he's on various, at least one watch list, not not a kill list, but the the broad, you know, many names on it watch list, and that some form of link analysis may have uh, tagged him as well as being linked to Al-Qaeda. Uh, and the judge said, look, that that's not irrelevant, but it's pretty speculative to, to jump from that to the conclusion that he's on the kill list. And I, I agree with that. I think that is too speculative. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't the type of argument that Kareem made, though. Kareem, the citizen, said there have been not, no fewer than five instances where there were airstrikes that nearly got me. And, and some maybe seem more marginal than others, but in any event, he alleges, and we're at the motion to dismiss stage where right. you must accept as true his allegations. His plausible allegations. His plausible allegations. So Fed court's nerd. Then the question becomes the question becomes, is it plausible to jump to the conclusion he's on the kill list? Uh, and the court seemed to find it, you know, probative A, there's not one, not two, but five alleged instances. And at least one of them, apparently the government did not contest that there was reason to believe that the missile in question was a U.S. Hellfire missile. Now, others use the Hellfire as well, and that's not discussed in the opinion. But nonetheless, um, the court put some weight on that. And she says, look, in this case, you know, Andy's a citizen, not too speculative. So he's over that initial threshold. For the sake of the motion to dismiss, it's assumed then that he is on the kill list. Mm-hmm. And he's able to go forward, which then means the court has to engage some of these other questions. Um, it gets awfully complicated at that point. Yeah. But the fundamental question initially is, is this also a political question, as Judge Bates had held in the Alalaki situation that was quite analogous previously? And Judge Collier says no. Right. So what's the distinction she draws? This is pretty interesting. So you're, you're deeper into this than I am. But my my sort of my takeaway, Bobby, is that the big distinction she draws is at least largely based on the emerging formalization of U.S. policy in this space and public identification of U.S. policy. So, for example, she points to the PPG, right, the Presidential Policy Guidance, as part of the indication that there is now a more concrete claim for someone like a U.S. for a U.S. citizen to advance based on due process. So, so you know, one way to look at this is to never mind Alalaki and just ask, well, wait, wh- why isn't this a political question? Mm-hmm. And as to that, well, you know, I, I think that the essence of the argument is pretty persuasive. It's it's this is an American citizen yep. that, among other things, is invoking constitutional rights. We don't say it's a political question when Yasser Hamdi is an enemy combatant detainee as a citizen and wants to contest that through procedural due process. This is why some of us thought Judge Bates was wrong in the first Alaki opinion to hold that that case presented a political question. Well, but so then then it gets interesting, right? So yes. what what other factors might there be if if in general the use of force against a citizen presents a 
political question, but I'm sorry, the use of force in general presents a political question, but as to a citizen who's complaining on constitutional grounds, that should be an exception. Is there a way to have al-Awlaki still be the right decision? And, and Judge Collier is in, throughout this opinion at great pains to show she's not saying Bates was wrong. Right. And, and it's kind of curious. I guess it's judicial comedy, but um, I don't find it persuasive because what she says is, it, it's not just that there's now a PPG and there's more formalization. There was There's plenty of formalization. It's not that functionally different in either case, in my opinion. Um, what she says is, and she conspicuously emphasizes this twice, that with Alalaki, that was a battlefield geographically downrange over their determination, whereas this was a Washington process determination. And there is Ample evidence in in also multiple right. books that have recounted the Alalaki. That Alalaki was in DC. That, that, that the yeah, same thing. Yeah, these are these are totally indistinguishable in that respect. I, I That's just, just wrong. I should just say for especially for our non-lawyer listeners, one district judge is not bound by right. the opinion of another district judge, even in the same courthouse. So there's no formal reason why Judge Collier would have been at such pains to distinguish as opposed to just disagree with. It feels like courtesy, yes, I guess. Yes, I think that's absolutely what, yeah. that's clearly what this is. Now, of course, that won't matter if you want to get to the D.C. Circuit. That's right. Um, okay, okay so, so there is that distinction, and it, I don't find that persuasive at all. I think it, it simply should have, if she comes out this way, she should have simply said that the other decision was not correct. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know why. The, I also am not sure why if the whole sort of rationale for judicial intervention is the protection of an American's constitutional rights, the geographical locus of the decision yeah. is an on-off switch as opposed to, say, a factor that might affect applicability of other doctrines and potentially okay. the merits. What I think maybe is at work here, and w- which makes sense, and you and I have both done some testifying about this, and th- this is a sensitive issue. In one issue. case at the same hearing. One time we did share that podium. Um, <laughs> so you hear a lot in this context about the use of force. Wait a minute. You're saying judges get to look, you know, some guy's about to pull the trigger has to call up a judge. No, 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 no. You have, we, we can, as you say, we got to walk and chew gum at the same time. We can draw a distinction between the on-site downrange determination in the moment about whether actionable intelligence actually reveals that, you know, this is who you think he is and this is where he is. And now you could shoot him with this platform right now as distinct from the completely not time-sensitive, judicial-like uh, process of nominating people and then arguing in D.C. or elsewhere about whether that person notionally is subject within the legal scope of targeting. So those are two different deals. Totally. All right. So uh, she says, look, the, the political question doctrine doesn't kill this case outright. Uh, but she then says, we got to then go through the elements and the steps. And there's a big Administrative Procedure Act threshold question here because the entire procedural vehicle for the case is the APA. And the APA has an exception where you can't challenge agency action if it's military action, quote, in the field in time of war. Two elements there, in the field, in time of war. So the government invokes that and says, look, you're, you're basically trying to use the APA to challenge a military decision in the field in time of war. And she says, no, it's actually not been shown by the government that this is in the field. Or that this is a time of war. Well, again, motion to dismiss, right? So you go on what's in the complaint, not what's necessarily actually so, true. So it gets really interesting. This raises 
a doctrinal question. What exactly is the, what's the boundary? Are we strict geography? When we say in the field, do we mean like there is a combat zone with a definitive geographic boundary and anything that's happening stateside, no matter how functionally related to the war, shouldn't count? The, the plain language lends itself to that sort of reading. And as, that's a, as does parallel language in the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Well, okay, so there's this really interesting article by Catherine Kovacs in the 2010 Administrative Law Review that goes really really deep into the weeds of exactly this issue. And she shows that there's a lot of precedent going the other way as well, that there are a lot of cases that have interpreted UCMJ and previously Articles of War use of in the field in ways that can reach stateside to sufficiently functionally war-related matters. Hmm. And so... and, and I don't think she doesn't say, and I don't think it is does. that true of all the UCMJ provisions or just some of them? Because like the no, one I don't, I don't think she, you know, she says there's some, right? Because so, like because the most contra- one of the most controversial provisions of the UCMJ is one that authorizes the assertion of court martial jurisdiction over military contractors serving with their accompanying an armed force in the field. I can't imagine that like you would think that that applies to contractors who are say you know um, cleaning up the the war room at the Pentagon. What if it's a contractor who's it? Creech Air Force Base, where there's drone pilots that are operating d- yeah. with direct effect downrange, but they're physically in the United States. I just, and I the mean, contractor's I, helping it. I, I just, so I don't know the article you're referring to, but it just strikes me as you know, in the field means something specific here. Well, but, my claim is no more, no less yeah. than that. There's there's interesting Open scholarship question. that says this is debatable. Yep. It would have been nice if there'd been an engagement with the debate. Yeah. Collier's opinion treats it as a, a formalism, that you're either downrange or you're not. And decision-making uprange here in the United States, even if directly involving, you know, in a functional sense, what will then happen downrange, isn't capable of triggering this decision. Uh, personally, I'd prefer to see a more functional analysis. Sure. But I think that's an interesting question, and certainly within the realm of reason to say, look, we're not talking about downrange decision-making. That's all that the in-the-field test requires. Um, separately... It's got to be in time of war. Now, this was a really surprising and interesting part of the decision. She says that the government has, through basically, she she basically accuses them of just lack of effort mm-hmm. and really ham-handed uh, and self-serving pleading here or argumentation here. She says, "Look, uh, I'm well aware that there's that there's hostilities underway in Iraq and Afghanistan. Like you would think this isn't a hard question, right?" Uh, she says, "But." Curiously enough, the government devotes like one line in a footnote to this. And in the argument, apparently tried, she says, apparently tried to maintain the position that there's no war here, that in Syria, we're just aiding and assisting other parties, which is, of course, totally contrary to other positions totally. the U.S. government takes. In other, in other cases. Yeah. So one of two things is true here. Either the government attorneys who argued this really screwed themselves on this particular point by trying to be cute about right. the, the war status of things. Or it just somehow got garbled, and it seemed that way to Judge Collier, and she's hammering the the, the government for this. Which one? Which one seems more likely to you? I, I don't know. I really yeah, don't. Yeah. Um, so, but that seems to me a point that that is not going to sustain, and the government should be able to correct the misimpression. On but here's that. what's here's the thing. So, so the the posture is interesting, though, right? Because a denial of a motion to dismiss on political question grounds is not typically immediately appealable. No, right? I think they got to go forward from unless here. they ask Judge Collier to certify under 28 USC 1292B. For for an interlocutory appeal, and they'd need both. I mean, I assume if Collier certifies, then the Court of Appeals would also certify. Yeah. But they'd have to do that to be able to take this straight up, as opposed to 
you know, playing this out in the sort of litigation. This raises an interesting question. There's a dog that didn't bark in this. The state secrets privilege. You read my mind. Where is the state so, secrets so privilege is, so, argument? So, you know, Josh Gerstein was all over the story. And I think I at least learned about this from him, right, um, when the opinion came out. And my initial reaction, there, there are folks who are like, oh, my God, this is a huge win. We're going to get a, you know, case is going to go forward. We're finally going to – and I'm like um, – no, because the next thing the government's going to do is they're going to say, okay, fine, it's time for discovery. Oh, wait, every single document that might be relevant to the allegations in this complaint um, are protected is protected by the state secrets. And indeed, one might say the very subject matter of the litigation itself. is itself a state secret. So, um, so I, just, I, I just see no yeah. scenario. So now I understand. But why didn't they plead this already? Well, so this is. Or, the or, I mean, why did they move on this ground? So we've talked before about this. Just to remind folks, there are really the state secrets privilege is actually really two different doctrines. We, um, you know, I disagree. You know, I don't agree with this. Okay, I think it's two different doctrines, right? What it's at least it has at least two different trunks. True, that I agree with. Okay. Well, that's now, come on. That was no, 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 it, mat- it matters a lot because okay, let's explain what the two trunks are, and okay. I'll tell you why it matters. All right, there are at least two different species, and how related the species are maybe the, the place where you and I disagree. So the version of the state secrets privilege, which you agree is a version of the state secrets privilege, um, right? That's called um, I don't know whatever you call it. So where the very subject matter of the litigation is itself a state secret, then the, the Totten doctrine, the Totten doctrine, right? Um, named after the great 1875 case about the Civil War era spy. Yeah. Um, then the litigation can't go forward, and indeed dismissal is appropriate at the motion to dismiss phase. The Supreme Court reaffirmed that as recently as 2005 in Tenet versus Doe. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, but that's only where that's that's narrow, right? The Totten rule is very narrow. Totten, you had the the whole question was breach of contract. And whether a contract existed was a secret. Therefore, the very subject matter of the litigation was a secret. Right. And whether this guy's on the kill list is the very thing they're trying to so, prove listen, and I, challenge. I'm and not, that's got to be disagree. a secret too. Okay. Then there's the evidentiary feature, right? The evidentiary trunk, where it's not the whole litigation is over a state secret, but the material evidence right. necessary to allow the claim to go forward or to allow the defendants to defend themselves are state secrets. And therefore, the litigation, you know, the right. first thing to do is to exclude the evidence. And then if the litigation can't go forward without that evidence, then you have then, to dismiss. Then suddenly there's a summary judgment motion and you're bound to lose. Yeah. But they but, end up in the same but, place. Yes, except, right, as you say, one is really a threshold motion to dismiss type claim yep. that I'm surprised the government did not make here. Yeah, exactly. And the other is So wait, a, wait, on that, why didn't they do it? I don't know. Maybe they just didn't think this case... Because it can't be that the, the Trump administration is no, less aggressive no. on this than the Obama administration No, no, was. no, no. There's no way that's what this is. Yes. Um, and maybe they just were so confident that even if they lost at the motion to dismiss stage, they'd win right after. Because now if I'm the government, right... I say, okay, fine, what discovery do you want? And the second the plaintiffs, you know, or the remaining plaintiff um, files their, you know, discovery request, the government says, okay, good, this is all blocked by the state secrets privilege, we're moving for summary judgment. Yeah, so one way or the other, we agree, they're going to lose. Yeah, Um, state secrets privilege. And and by the way, even I am not sure that's, that's the wrong result here. Oh yeah, no. I mean, it, well, although, although I think it brings into really visible relief uh, the potential scope of the uh, the cost of the state secrets privilege, where you're talking about what what if this is an unjust, procedurally yeah. improper inclusion of an American citizen totally. on, on a kill list? That seems it seems wrong I agree. that he can't get 
further in litigation through that. But that's, that is clearly the, the doctrinal consequence here. And so listen, I, I, my point is not that I like the state secrets privilege. Oh, I know. I right? know. My I know point is that page. where the case law is on the state secrets privilege, including in the D.C. Circuit, I just don't see yeah. how this survives. Right. So so the, the upshot of it is, and we need to move away from it now, Zidane v. Trump. Uh, we only bre- spent 25 minutes on it. It breaks new ground on the apparent ability to uh, get past political question obstacles for a citizen, at least, who's alleging to be uh, on the kill list. That is not what happened in Al-Awlaki, and the cases aren't really distinguishable. Uh, but it's probably not going to go any further because of the state secrets privilege. I think that's right, although I do think it will become an interesting citation for the proposition that, citizen, that at least where a citizen's a plaintiff, the political question doctrine really ought not to bar these kinds of claims. Um, where else could that matter? Imagine if you have a context where the political question doctrine, for example, is being invoked against, I don't know, service members who are trying to sue military contractors, which is what's going on right now in the yeah, burn pit litigation. That's right. So I do think it will have importance. Okay. All right. Um, Let's... Military detention. So we we had, I think, initially assumed that we'd have a lot more to say about sustaining member Doe versus Mattis in this Yeah, block. there's supposed to be a hearing on and right, right at this moment. But no, we're postponing to July 13th, Friday the 13th, because, you know, that seems appropriate. Yeah. Um, to be fair, right, unopposed by the like you know the parties jointly. No, this agreed, is their joint agreement, right? To give them more time to flesh out, I think the factual and legal briefing on just how safe or unsafe the government's proposed release locations in Syria really are. Right, and and all that, of course, when we criticize the slow pace getting to the merits, slow is you know it's glacial. It's <laughs> not. It's say. it's literally not happening. Um, <laughs> We are not saying that it doesn't make sense that you should speed through these other things. We're no. saying you should be able to pursue these things simultaneously. That, right. I want to be clear. I am not saying that I am bothered, right, that the government and the ACLU are being careful about building yeah. the record here. I'm saying, great, do that. And also, D- Judge Chuckin, while they're doing that, since you won't be doing anything yeah. in this case in the next couple of weeks, write a merits opinion. The legal merits are all they're contesting at this point. The factual merits have been bracketed and set aside. And the legal merits have been fully briefed for like months. I mean, they almost need more time just so people can go back and refresh their recollection as to what was in them. I just, I, it is increasingly clear to me, and I want to be as clear as possible about who I am and who I am not criticizing. It is increasingly clear to me that the delay in adjudication of the merits of Doe's detention at this point, as opposed to perhaps at earlier points in litigation, is the fault only of Judge Chuckett. Is, does ACLU bear any responsibility, or, or Doe himself, in terms of not actually pressing the court for so, a faster schedule, as near as listen, we can tell? The, my understanding is the ACLU has not pressed the court for faster decision-making. Yeah. But I'm not sure that means they bear responsibility, as opposed to just like, you know, I wouldn't... I mean, I don't think it's... I don't think it's their fault, right? Like, there, there, there comes a point where the judge has to say, listen, even if the parties are consenting to all this stuff, I have an independent obligation as a yeah. judge to not just the parties before me, but to the next case and the other cases and the law. I'd come down – I'm not happy about the situation. I would come down much harder in the court if I thought uh, John Doe was actually pressing for the yes, merits. Yes, no, no, of course. And, and indeed, and, and in, in theory, in a case in which like uh, someone in U.S. custody was aggressively pressing a judge to issue a ruling and the judge was refusing to do oh, yeah, so. That'd be, that'd be crazy. Well, then there would be a remedy, right? Yeah. Which would be – I mean, there, there is yeah. such a thing as mandamus to compel a district court to rule. Right, exactly so. Although I don't know that that's All right. the idea. All right. So, anyway, so, 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 so check back here in another month for the next update in Doe versus Mattis. 
Now, speaking of citizen detention, we, there was... An uh, old chestnut came back into the fire. That old chestnut. The, the, what previously, hadn't it been the Feinstein Amendment or something like yep. that? Now it's Wait, the Lee Amendment. It start, so this all started in the FY 2012 National Defense Authorization right. Act. The one time where Congress decided, okay, we will speak expressly about military detention, and we will basically codify what, over a decade, the executive branch and the courts have yep. generated through the habeas litigation. And, 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 and Senator Feinstein, um, as part of this whole process, introduced something that was initially called the Due Process Guarantee Act, which was basically an effort to crystallize that whatever the heck the NDA was going to do for non-citizens outside the U.S., it was actually going, she wanted to get in exchange for that, some affirmative constraint on detention authority for U.S. citizens anywhere and for non-citizens lawfully present in the United States. And in the end, that became a, something people fought over. And the NDAA for fiscal year 2012 contains this we're not deciding anything clause about Known citizens. as the Feinstein Amendment because that was her own compromise to her original right. proposal. It says don't construe that statute to move the needle on the legality of U.S. citizen detention one way or the U.S. other. U.S. citizen or non-citizens lawfully present. Lawfully present as well. So U.S. person. Uh, let's Indeed. I mean, that's basically what it is. And, and so the the Due Process Guarantee Act has been reintroduced a couple of times in the in the interim years. It's never moved anywhere. Um, all of a sudden, it showed back up in the NDA negotiations as an amendment proposed by Utah Senator Mike Lee. Right. And so there, you know, there's always been common cause between the more libertarian Republicans and the in the Civil Liberties Democrats. Yeah, I'm surprised it came up now. But so so just to be clear, so so just so everyone understands, there are two key features to the to the to the to the whatever this amendment's called, the Lee Amendment. What was the Due Process Guarantee Act? And it does two things. It's going to amend 18 USC section 4001, the mm -hmm. Non-Detention Act, to say two additional things. First, where a citizen is concerned, um, or a non-citizen lawfully present in the United uh -huh. States, um, it's not just, I'm sorry, no, just a citizen. Where a right. citizen's concerned, um, the, the statute authorizing detention has to be expressed. Yeah. And there's actually some thought that that language would overrule Hamdi. Uh, right. Well, no, I think that's right because I think the language actually says a, a declaration well, so or authorization no, so the next, military so force next, doesn't count. That's the next provision. So oh, then the it's next, separate. So, so the first provision is um, any statute authorizing the detention of a U.S. citizen has to be expressed. The second one says AUMS and declarations of war are generally presumed to not authorize the detention. Um, at least of U.S. I, I'm getting backwards. Which one says only U.S. citizens? Which one says U.S. citizens and yeah. those lawfully? Well, but the key thing is none of this matters because the amendment was defeated, was right. not was ruled non-germane, and so was kept. Which out. is interesting because how is it non-germane to the Defense Authorization Act? Well, that you know, obviously, the the use <laughs> of germaneness as a test is is a it's a label, not a not a real conclusion. But right? what I've always found interesting about the Due Process Guarantee Act, Bobby, is that actually some of the fiercest opposition to the provision comes from the left. Because there are folks who are really worried about what it might implicitly authorize by omission, right? That that by focusing on citizens and not focusing on, sorry, that that because only one of the categories refers to citizens, not both of them, it actually could implicitly be read as authorizing the detention of non-citizens lawfully present in at least certain circumstances. Um, could be, could I, be. But to me, I gotta yeah. say, I mean, I, I realize this is this is where I once again show off my credentials as someone who nobody agrees with, right? Um, <laughs> I think that's. The, I think the perfect there is being the enemy of the good. Like I think that you know the cases where the language of the Lee Amendment would actually cause be worse compared to the status quo are almost impossible to create. Whereas we have examples of cases where the Lee Amendment, if it were enacted, would affirmatively change the law. To my mind, for the better. Well, 
I can't say I'm surprised it didn't make it. It would have uh, been a big impact on Debbie Mattis, but there it goes. All right. Um, I mean, we agree, I think, in Doe versus Madison. It would have ended Doe versus Madison in favor of Doe. Absolutely. So, meanwhile, Doe goes on. Doe goes uh, on. There were, let's note real quickly, the uh, the status of the NDAA. The NDAA is great because it goes through every year. It's one of the few vehicles. You say it's great. I say it's a train wreck. The, what would we be talking about half the time without the NDAA? You it, need the NDAA. It's just about the only must-pass bill left in Congress. Well, it's, you know, there's very, Congress does very little actual authorizing. There's bills that get introduced, but they never go through. Right. But the NDAA always does. It's one of the few functional areas. How can you vote against funding the military? Well, you know, I mean, it's just authorizing. You could just appropriate later on. Um, anyways, the, the Senate has passed on Monday night its version of the NDAA, which is going to have to be reconciled with the House version. They both have the usual slate of Guantanamo transfer restrictions. The one big differential between them is that the Senate version has a, and this is somewhat remarkable, relatively speaking, has a provision that allows for the transfer into the United States on a temporary and only temporary basis of Guantanamo detainees in order to receive emergency medical treatment, right? It's basically, it's it's sort of a, like, you, you've got to be able to do this in certain medical circumstances. The, the amendment, I mean, sorry, the provision then says, you know, the person cannot claim any rights. This person must be returned to Guantanamo as soon as medically practicable. Um, it'll be interesting to see if this makes it. Part of what's interesting about it is it does, if it goes through, it certainly shows you that it is possible to craft provisions that would allow for bringing people like, oh, I don't know, criminal defendants into the United States for defined limited purposes that do not actually force us then to have to let that person stay in America permanently if they invoke asylum claims or or whatever else might happen. So I think that is one reason why the House doesn't have the same opinion and one reason why this will probably be fought over fairly intently during the conference process. Um, but for all that it seems like a really narrow rifle shot thing, it would establish a pretty interesting principle. Now, maybe 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 that principle wouldn't hold up in litigation the first time some emergency medical transfer takes place. Next thing you know, that person's moving in next door to Steve's house. Um, I think it probably would hold up and it would show you that there are pathways out of this sort of logjam situation. You know, you know what else is in the version of the Senate NDA that passed on Monday night? Uh, there's a lot else. What do you have in mind? Section 546. Ooh, which one's that one? Clarification of expiration of term of appellate military judges on the United States Court of Military Commission oh, Review. Is that an anti-Dalmazi position? Yes. Uh, what, what would it do? So uh, it's actually, remember we've talked before about the problem that's arisen with Judge Herring, who's continuing uh -huh, to yeah, serve on yeah. the Court of Military Commission Review as a civilian after his military retirement. So this would amend the relevant provision of Title 10 of the uh, UCMJ, I'm sorry, of uh, U.S. Code, um, to provide that if you are a military officer, either assigned or appointed to the CMCR, your term on the CMCR expires either on the day you leave active duty or when you're reassigned to other duties, whichever comes first. So it would pretermit the, the problem that has arisen at the moment where Judge Herring is serving well after he's left the military. Now, I, I note two interesting things about this. One, it's not at all clear to me that this would actually moot Dalmazi because this would presumably only apply to future, you can't change the terms of someone's appointment while, after he's appointed, right? Yeah. So presumably this would only apply to future appointments to the CMCR. Two, Bobby, this has clearly been in the works for a while. What makes you say that? Because it was in the, it, it came out of Sask before we learned, before the flurry of yeah, activity yeah. in the Supreme Court about Judge Herring. Interesting. And so someone, somewhere, yeah. 
saw the problem that Judge Herring was going to raise. I, I've had a lot of contact with Sask and Hask staffers over time, and they tend to be so smart about all these nuances of, of law and, and the DOD, you know, full range of circumstances. So that didn't surprise me too much. It sounds like, though, there's some chance that this could be yet another reason why you might get uh, relisted. Well, or re-argued. re-argued well, so yes. the interesting thing is if they actually do set us up for re-argument and this passes between now and then, we're going to have to brief this, too. Good heavens. Because <laughs> it, it wouldn't shock me. I think it's totally wrong. It wouldn't shock me if the government also pointed to this language and says, look, Congress thinks military officers can be appointed to the CMCR. See? Authorization. Oh, my goodness. So Dalmazi will continue to be a sustaining member itself, oh perhaps. Oh, my gosh. I really hope not. Can it be just done by tomorrow? Well, speaking of things that are done, we'll finish off the military detention subset of topics real quick here. Two quick notes. Fourth Circuit denied en banc review in Hamidullin. This was this is an attempt to sort of kind of point to evolving circumstances in Afghanistan as possibly showing the end of the armed conflict phase and the, the end of authority to detain. Um, that argument failed below. I think it was never very likely to succeed. I'm not surprised at all that they didn't grant en banc review. And I very much doubt that they'd get cert either. I think that's right. Um, and then you also wanted to talk briefly about the Carol Rosenberg oh, yeah. article yeah, noting so new Car- prof- possible prep for new details of Gitmo. Car- Carol's article is always worth reading, and she describes how, you, you know, not because somebody has decided anything, but because the military's got a plan for stuff, um, there is, you know, some amount of preparation underway in the facilities in Guantanamo in case they have new detainees arrive. Lots of interesting little nuggets or details, like, you know, not using orange jumpsuits because of just, you know, all the, the iconography that goes with that. Um, it raises the possibility that there will be detainees. It doesn't prove anything. It doesn't indicate anything about new policies being decided. But just continue to watch that space. Uh, And I will use this as an occasion to remind everybody that there are many, many, many Islamic State fighters detained, not by us or by the Iraqis, but by our SDF uh, allies in Syria who are in an increasingly dire situation for a variety of reasons, and there's no reason to think they're going to keep holding these people all the time. And dozens, apparently, of these detainees uh, are Western citizens of various kinds, and there is a real battle that's been going on for quite a while um, with the uh, Trump administration trying hard to convince uh, the countries of origin of these people to take them back. You've got at least some, like the so-called, and I hate to use the phrase, the Beatles, the the formerly British citizen Islamic State uh, detainees, who've lost their British citizenship, had it stripped from them, uh, who may not go back there, may need to come here, or who knows what will happen. But I don't think we've seen the end, even though it's been more than a year of the Trump administration with no actual action to bring someone there. Don't think we've seen the end of that. It could happen. And if it does happen, I bet you it'll be because some of those uh, Islamic State fighters in SDF custody have to be put somewhere. And then then I'm sure that will provoke yet more habeas litigation. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's and that's that's something that everyone agrees would indeed happen. Um, speaking of the scope of the AUMF getting tested, this isn't really a testing of it. It's just an illustration of how the scope expands in ways that you don't always know publicly about, including <laughs> which groups count as associated forces. I say this because uh, a couple of weeks ago, DOD issued a press release from AFRICOM uh, indicating they had conducted what was described in the release as the second DOD uh, airstrike on AQIM, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Um, and AQIM, to the best of my knowledge, has never been publicly identified as an associated force the AUM, uh, under the AUMF. Uh, if it 
is now one, and I think probably it is now one, because the language in this press release pointedly says, you know, we targeted four AQIM members in a mission to disrupt AQIM. This is the language of AUMF action against associated forces, not the language of using um, force against a particular person who individually has ties to al-Qaeda. So could be that we have another recent example there of AUMF expansion where the public doesn't even really understand what's going on. I'm still not supporting Corker Kid, just FYI. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, speaking of, of military expansions of interesting notes. Yeah. Um, Baker so, v. Spath, tell us. What Baker happened? Sp- so fascinating opinion on Monday from Judge Lamberth under the name Baker. So so this is this is the 10-layer dip, right? This is yeah. like layer six and a half of the 10-layer dip. So as part of the Al-Nashiri mess in the military commissions, um, at one point, Judge Spath had held General John Baker, the chief defense counsel, in contempt. He had sentenced him to 21 days in confinement, $1,000 fine. Um, that sentence was largely suspended by convening authority, then the convening authority, Harvey Rishikov, who otherwise affirmed the conviction um, in his review. Um, and Baker brought a habeas petition in the D.C. District Court, collaterally attacking what's basically a criminal conviction on the ground that Judge Spath lacked personal jurisdiction over him because he's an American citizen. He's not subject to the military commissions under Chapter 47A, um, and on the ground that Spath lacked the authority to issue con- a contempt citation, and on the ground that what he had actually done wasn't contempt as is defined by the Military Commissions Act. Okay, and how did those three arguments fare? Um, awkwardly. So <laughs> so Judge Lambert's 27-page opinion reaches four holdings. Holding number one, um, the presumption of collateral consequences means that Baker's challenge is not moot, even though he's not in any kind of detention. Right? Okay, so right. That, would, that sounds right. Classic, right? You know, you're convicted of a crime, but you're free. You're still allowed to challenge the conviction through whatever okay. legal remedies are so available. So con- far, non-controversial. Um, number two, Baker exhausted all of the remedies available to him within the military commission system and had no mechanism for a direct appeal. Therefore, he was entitled to habeas, uh, no abstention under under the councilman doctrine. He was entitled to pursue habeas, right? Pursue Got habeas, it. sorry. Okay. He was entitled to, right, the district court was not required to abstain in favor of military commission proceedings that were no longer available to Baker. Okay. Um, Three, that the military commission does have personal jurisdiction over General Baker for the purposes of making findings of and punishments for contempt. And four, that Judge Spath and military judges in Chapter 47A military commissions generally do not possess a unilateral contempt power. So Baker wins. But with some really interesting stuff along so the way. So he loses on that first point where there he had claimed that he's as not a, a, he's not he's, an alien, unprivileged enemy belligerent. Right. Therefore, under 10 U.S.C. 948C, he's not someone who's subject to trial by a military. This commission. is not my area, but that didn't surprise me. It, it would seem odd to me that anyone, any judge, would be presiding over trial with no ability to have contempt authority over other people besides the defendant in the process. So two two responses. One, there is a separate statute that I've talked about before that that makes it a civilian crime for civilians to be recalcitrant witnesses in military mm-hmm. pr- prosecutions. All right, so right? it picks up witnesses. So there is an alter- so um, and and Spath, uh, Baker was held in contempt for refusing to testify, mm-hmm. right? So he was ba- so I think Baker could have been proceeded against under the federal recalcitrant witness statute. Except except he's military not civilian. I'm sorry. I th- wait, the statute, let me just make sure. I I want to pull up the statute so I don't screw this up. I think it's 28 USC 1926, is that right? No. Uh-oh. All right. Well, anyway, um, I had thought maybe that's why Baker wouldn't be eligible to that. But anyway, okay. um, the argument, though, but there's also a constitutional backstop. By the way, I'm not sure that's true. I'll double-check it. But there's okay. a constitutional backstop, which is um, Americans aren't usually subject – like, Americans are not usually subject to, to military commission 
jurisdiction. And the exception that the Supreme Court recognized in Kieran, right, allowing American citizens to be tried by a military commission, was for violations of the laws of war by enemy belligerents. Right, Baker neither violated the law of war nor is an enemy belligerent. Well, well, and, and clearly, Baker couldn't be prosecuted by commission for uh, the types of offenses that the commissions are themselves directly empowered to, okay. to preside over. But I would have thought that once you have any prosecution system, there yeah. comes with it a collateral ability for the judge to manage the court, including. So, for example, if Baker was the trial counsel right. and kept showing up, I don't know, buck naked in court <laughs> and disrespecting the court by his nudity, surely there would be some disciplinary authority the court would have over him simply by virtue of being a judge presiding in so a there proceeding. So is, there is something called an inherent contempt power. That's what I was thinking right? of. But Baker wasn't, Baker wasn't held in inherent contempt. Baker, Baker was adjudicated to be guilty of the offense of contempt under the Military Commission Act, which is not inherent contempt. Aha. Now there, it starts to make sense to me. It's starting to become yeah. clear. So you're saying that there was a particular type of contempt charge that seems designed to be contempt relating to the, the defendants, right? But but not necessarily the and indeed the, the, the defin- and indeed the definition. Of, I mean, let me pull up the definition of contempt. I mean, the definition of contempt in the Military Commission Act is pretty narrow. So let me just pull this up. Do, do, do. Um, there's nothing to see here. So 10 U.S.C. 950 T31 <laughs> defines contempt as. Um, any person who uses any menacing word, sign, or gesture in its presence, that is the commission's presence, um, or who disturbs its proceedings by any riot or disorder. That is a narrower definition. That was of the one he that was relied on? Yes. How, that didn't seem to fit. Exactly. So I'm getting, you, okay. you, you know, this much, Chesney. Uh, <laughs> you like that when I agree with you. Indeed. All right. So there, there are a couple layers here. So the personal jurisdiction whole thing, listen, I think there's a, it's a close question on personal jurisdiction. Um, the statute says, right, that alien unprivileged enemy belligerents can be tried by military commissions. It nowhere says other people can except here in 10 U.S.C. Yeah. 952 t where it says any person, right, can be prosecuted right. for contempt. Would you agree if, if instead Spath had right. relied on inherent contempt, yes. uh, this, would, this would be more plausible? I think so, but then that would require recognizing that Spath has the inherent powers that we normally associate with courts of record, yeah. which would open the door to a lot of things I think he should be able to do that he says he can't. Right, and I agree with that. Okay, okay. So, then, so then, but he nonetheless, so Baker nonetheless wins in the end. So wait, so the personal, so the personal jurisdiction holding is important, right, because it means that in an appropriate case where the proper procedures are followed, there's no problem with the military commission going after, say, civilian lawyers, right, civilian witnesses, um, civilian law professors, right? Remember, Professor Yaroshevsky was involved in this case at one point. And I'm not, given the existence, Baker aside, right, given the existence of the federal recalcitrant witness statute, um, which specifically provides a remedy for civilians who fail to cooperate with a military proceeding, it seems to raise constitutional problems to say that these um, that American citizen civilians could also be subject to personal jurisdiction in the military commissions. Can is the idea that Spath could have invoked and relied upon the recalcitrant witness statute? So the idea is he could have referred the case to the Justice Department. Right, but then it would have been out of his hands. Well, so what? I mean, no, no, I'm, I'm just saying descriptively. Yeah, yes, that, that's, that's why he probably. Wasn't, of course it is. Yeah, but you know, Spath also said if a, if a federal court ultimately tells me that I don't have the power to hold people in contempt, I might as well just go home. Right. So I see the clatter. I see the, the the shadow this cast. Yes, um, maybe Baker isn't the best case for it, but by holding that right. the contempt language overrides the narrower alien unprivileged enemy belligerent language of 10 USC 948C, 
it opens the door to assertions of personal jurisdiction by the commissions over right. American citizen civilians. And it and it doesn't do it in a way that seems to lend itself to a ready distinction between Baker, who seems like a relatively easy case because there he is directly right. engaged with the court. He's a chief the defense counsel. Where it, versus outsiders who in some way kind of are brushed by right. this Right. I don't case. understand the difference between, for example, Baker and Professor Yaroshevsky. Right. That's, and, and, and that gives me real pause. Yeah. Okay. So then, uh, but, then he, but he wins anyways. He wins anyway. Bobby, not for the obvious reason. So you and I look at this language in 10 U.S.C. 950 T31. It's like a wrong, wrong, wrong statute. statute yeah. Right? This is this sounds like you know people who sort of are disruptive. Yeah, yeah my example. If he sh- shows up naked, he's yeah. acting out, etc. Yeah. Baker just refused to testify. Right? He did it right. politely. No, he did I'm it with you on that. Um, so I would have thought the easy way out would just be to say the conduct wasn't content. Wasn't, or know, wasn't this wasn't kind, this of, kind of contempt. Might have been some other kind of contempt, Whatever. but not this right? kind. That, this statute, that, that as a matter of law, Baker did not commit contempt. Okay. Instead, right, Lamberth rules that Spath lacked the power to impose contempt unilaterally. Because Spath is not the military commission, and therefore he could only have imposed this punishment if he convened a full proceeding with, with members. So his, yeah, he's not really like a judge in that sense. He acts only by, with, and through the larger institution. Well, of we're the back to the panel. difference between statutory contempt and inherent contempt, right. right? Where maybe if it was just inherent contempt, that would be that would be within the judge's his, power to manage a courtroom. But because this is one of the offenses set out in the statute, yeah. So, so I'm in the weird position of thinking that Lamberth got reached the right result and got both of the big questions wrong. Oh, you actually think it's wrong that yes. under this yes. he wouldn't. Yes, I actually think the right. I think there were two ways that Baker should have won. One, no personal jurisdiction, or two, personal jurisdiction just because he's General Baker, but this isn't contempt under the Military Commissions right. Act. This could have been, and he could then reissue maybe an inherent contempt finding. Whatever. But not this. But neither this. Right. But neither. So, so we get a weird ruling where Baker wins, but I think for not the reasons I think are most convincing. Since he won, no appeal. By right? him. But right, but the government might look at this and think like, "Hey, we mostly won on what counts here." Well, so that's the question. So if I'm the government, right, I take this and I, 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 I go home because yeah. because if I appeal, I open myself up to a cross appeal on the personal Absolutely. jurisdiction holding. No, this this is like comedy where it's like the headline maybe that you lost, but you won on the important part. Of well, it. so the government may have won. Spath lost. I mean, right? Once yeah. again, I mean, this is you know, Rita Radistich said this on Twitter the other day. I mean. Once again, when actions by the military commissions receive the light of day in civilian courts, they don't hold up. I know, yeah. I know, you. I know, yeah. this is me, not you. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I would be very surprised if the government appeals this. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. So then... That puts an end to the to part of the dip, but there's so many other parts. No, no, of the that's dip just that, that are... just cleans off like one layer of the yeah, dip. Yeah, yeah. Right? There's lots of lots of layers still um, there. And also, I mean, the other thing is, presumably, if we go back and if Baker refuses, continues to refuse to allow his lawyers to participate in the Nashiri case, now Spath will convene the right kind of contempt proceeding. It'll be interesting to see if he does, or if instead he decides to. Well, I guess he has no choice now, right? He'll have to eat. He'll have to either. There's two pathways going forward. He can try what we're talking about as the inherent contempt method, which he seems averse to focus on right now, or he could go back and try to exercise this kind yeah. of contempt authority working through commission panels. Here's a quirk, though, right? A real quirk. He's not bound by Lamberth. I mean, he is a party to Lambert's decision. So, he so he's could, bound. In so that he's way. bound with respect to the decision vis a vis Baker. He's not bound by the analysis. Right, you're saying it's not the, the holding isn't binding lo- on him. It's not binding precedent. It's not the law of the military commission because the military commissions are not subservient to the DC district court. Well, <laughs> so I'm just saying more mischief. All right, um, 
We just hit the hour mark, so maybe yeah, we should let's go do into lightning, lightning round. round. Yeah. So speaking of the military commissions, Judge Pohl issued a tentative case scheduling order in the 9-11 case that basically says we're going to be here until the end of time. Right. He said, uh, here's what we're doing in 2019. And he, for more, <laughs> more or less sort of on a monthly basis here, this is the two-week windows. You know, to me, I look at this and I think all this is, is in, in no small part a reflection of the geographic complexity of trying to do things down there. Uh, would you agree that if this was a capital case in the Southern District of New York, you wouldn't you wouldn't have this protracted yes. uh, schedule? Yes. There's no question that there are a lot of issues to be yes. sorted out. And a yes. lot of this, kind of like we were saying earlier about Dovey Mattis, a lot of this is because the defense has certain things it needs to do of and course. needs time to do. Of course. But the geography is slowing it down. And 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 just just be clear, I mean, every single estimate the judges have put place so far on these proceedings right. has been wildly off because they failed to account for appeals. So basically, we can say for a fact that there will be no 9-11 commission in the 2000s. I think that's right. And, right. and that the best, best, best or worst case scenario, right, um, the most aggressive I could see, Bobby, is maybe a trial that's over sometime in 2020. But then you've got to have the appeal to the CMCR. Then you've got to oh, have yeah. the appeal to the D.C. Circuit. Then you've got to have the appeal to the Supreme yeah. Court. It's 2025, I think, at the earliest before this is. there's any chance this is over. If the case were moved to the Eastern District of Virginia tomorrow it would be over by 29 it would be over it would be would, over, would it be over, able over. to get to trial faster or would it be having to cover so many issues that previously had been dealt yeah. with in the commissions that it can't actually go quicker might even be slower at so this point? so assuming there are no fatal obstacles to move in the case and it's right. not clear that there aren't right but assuming no fatal obstacles i think the pre-trial proceedings would still take a little while right but that as, as soon as they could they caught up they would be much faster, yeah. and that would be done by early twenty. Well, and there'd be a lot less. There'd be many fewer appellate issues, of course, because because you have a trial judge that knows what yeah, they're yeah. doing. All right, so uh, well, in, in in a system that's a lot about the system, of course, would be already established. Right. Real quick, we already actually kind of covered this. Yeah. Blue citing Hirabayashi in a brief. Yeah, and just to be clear, like there's nothing wrong with citing the language "the power to wage war is the power to wage war successfully." It's not original to Hirabayashi. It's not necessary to cite Hirabayashi. It's not smart to cite Hirabayashi. It's, um, it's just like a bad look. It's like just, yeah, there's, you just don't get it. You you mean like when Trump was talking about Space Force and he said something about Air Force and Space Force and he said, "quote." They'll be, quote, separate but equal. Like, there's just some phrases we don't do, oh, some things, some moves we don't do. All right. Uh, let me just say, if you want to know about, the, you want to actually know about the idea of a doctrine of the power to wage war being the power to wage war successfully, uh, yes. go read Matt Waxman's Columbia Law Review article. He talks about this in great detail and shows you where it comes from. Charles Evans Hughes. Right. Great article. I mean, to be clear, right, right, the government was not citing the more controversial parts of Hero by Austin. No, no, no. It was, so it, it was just it was just dumb. No, it was, it, that's just... Dumb. It was dumb. Okay. Um, uh, flipping to civilian uh, prosecution. So Abu Qatala, right, one of the, the Benghazi ringleader guy, um, we had talked briefly before about his pre the, the slow ship, right, yeah. and the, the pretrial machinations. The Warsami model. Right. He was convicted. Um, he brought this interesting, Bobby, sort of post-trial motion for basically reconsideration. Well, it, it was a, it was a uh, mistrial motion, yeah. post-conviction yep. mistrial motion. Yep. And he cited all these examples where— like Inflammatory statements by the prosecutors. Saying, like, you know, there were promises of, of what the evidence would show in— opening statements and then claims about the evidence in the closing statement that weren't fully supported by the evidence or weren't supported by the evidence. And the judge went through and basically said, as to some of these, I agree. As to some of the statements, I do find them inflammatory, you know, stone cold terrorists, certain characterizations that he had 
in several instances told the government to be careful about, and the government kind of argued a certain way anyways. But at the end of the day, they didn't change the fact that the evidence was more than sufficient. And, and, and the pattern of acquittals that accompanied the conviction showed that on the issues where the biggest problems had arisen with what the government had said they would prove yep. had already been reflected in the acquittals yep. on those aspects of the charge. Yep. And, and so, no, no surprise there. No, but an interesting read by Judge Cooper. Oh, I mean, for I think, sure. I think it's, it's a very thoughtful opinion. Yes, I mean another good example of how the Article Three courts deal with these cases. Speaking of which, um, we've had some. We like to give a little updates on what DOJ has been up to in the national security realm. Let me flag a really interesting Islamic State material support case that came out um, announced just uh, on the thirteenth a week ago. Waheba Issa Dice is originally from Israel. It's a lawful permanent resident now in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, she was somebody. This is, I only know what's been stated in the in the press release, but apparently she was hacking people's social media accounts, so getting other people's accounts and then using them to do all this Islamic State, not just propagandizing, but eventually got connected up with what must have been a confidential informant, pretending to be an Islamic State fighter or someone interested in committing violence on behalf of the Islamic State. And she worked with this person talking about how you here's how you make ricin. Um, you know, a biotoxin. Uh, here's what you might do. You might set off a bomb at this summer music festival, that sort of thing. Um, and so a pretty disturbing situation. Uh, she is now under arrest and will probably get 20 years unless there's a plea. So there's that. We've got, uh, as I mentioned earlier, some uh, leak-related stuff. Weldon Marshall was a, a guy in Texas who had been in the Navy and then been a defense contractor and had been unlawfully retaining classified information, apparently made quite a habit over over time, sometimes sending himself through the mail, you know, CDs uh, labeled, you know, my secret stuff. Uh, he's got a 41-month sentence, so, you know, uh, three and a half years, basically. And then the big news, uh, which I guess was a couple of days ago, a guy who was already under arrest, uh, Joshua Schulte, um, already under arrest for all the child pornography that they, in the course of investigating him, they'd found on his computers. Now they've come out and said what was already pretty clear they believed. They've, they've uh, superseded the indictment now with charges of unauthorized disclosure of classified information. This is Vault 7 material, CIA uh, hacking tools and other materials being turned over to WikiLeaks, which mm-hmm. then published it all. Yep. So that guy's going to go to jail for a really long time. Yep. All right, uh, that's our DOD or sorry DOJ roundup. Real quick roundup: civil on litigation, civil stuff. Um, so um, this is actually a really interesting opinion by the Third Circuit that has flown totally under the radar. Bobby, we've talked before about Castro versus Homeland Security. This was a f- August 2016 decision by the Third Circuit that held that the suspension clause did not protect non-citizens who were subject to expedited removal, who were physically but not lawfully present in the United States. Um, and as you know, I've been quite critical of the Third Circuit for basically holding that these non-citizens physically present on U.S. soil somehow have less suspension clause protection than terrorism suspects captured on foreign battlefields and shipped to Guantanamo. And so what happened in this opinion? So Monday, the Third Circuit had a case involving four of the same petitioners as in Castro. Um, but right, their kid, these are kids, by the way, immigrant children in immigration detention. Where have I seen that in the news lately? Um, these are children who were accorded so-called special immigrant juvenile status, um, a protective classification designed by Congress to safeguard abused, abandoned, or neglected alien children who are able to meet its rigorous eligibility requirements. So basically, the government took these four children who were in this expedited removal proceeding 
and to my mind properly classified them as SIJs, right, special immigrant juveniles. And the Third Circuit says, whoa, if the government is giving them status, right, not lawful status, but protected status as special immigrant juveniles, that means the government is recognizing that they actually are at least legally entitled not to benefit, right, but to be here. And that that is enough to distinguish Castro. Okay. And so with regard to these four petitioners, the Third Circuit held that the provisions of the Immigration Nationality Act that preclude federal courts from hearing habeas petitions challenging the denial of asylum in these cases violates the suspension clause. Um, so the Third Circuit actually stru- you know, held that a jurisdiction stripping statute is unconstitutional under the suspension clause. That doesn't happen every day. It's a big deal. And yeah. it's gotten no attention because our immigration detention sites have been... Elsewhere, we're, we're a little little busy on that front, uh, but, separating but children is, I mean, from their so families. I have to say, this case is called Ocasio Martinez versus Attorney General. It was decided on Monday, and there are just two quick things I think that ought to be said about it. First, it strikes me as the absolute right result. Second, it actually perpetuates the deeply flawed analysis of Castro. Right, because it says the reason why you, for children in immigration detention, get suspension clause protection is only because the government has chosen to uh, uh, bestow upon you this SIJ, special immigrant juvenile status. So this is like the the Baker v. Spath. You like the result, but you're frustrated by the the doctrinal conclusions reached on on route. And and so, and again, I wonder if the government would be shy about taking this en banc or to the Supreme Court because it would open the door to Castro getting revisited. Uh, Dumb question, but does this have any implications for the current insanity going on uh, on our southern border with the kids? Not really, because those kids, I mean, the... It, it does at the margins, but in, in a way that's not yet squarely on point, right? I mean, so first of all, there's no there's no law specifically in the Fifth Circuit on this question. Um, so presumably the Third Circuit isn't going to buy them one or the other. There's a pending case already in the Ninth Circuit on this question that's going to get there first. Yeah, okay. Um, there are, as you know, multiple lawsuits now challenging the separation of children from their parents at the border. Right. Um, the government, so far as I know, has not argued that the federal courts lack the power to hear those lawsuits. Interesting. It would only be once that happened— Right, because because no one in those cases is challenging the denial of asylum. Right, right. They're saying that as a as a sort of antecedent to their ability to press their asylum claims, they're entitled to not be separated from their children. It's amazing stuff. Amazing times we're living in. And by the way, according to the internet, President Trump later today is going to sign an executive order ending the policy of child of family. Oh, is that right? He's going to back down. That by the way, he said he couldn't do because it was all the Democrats. Yeah, look, I, I always say like, <laughs> create space for him to back down from from bad ideas. Um, if that if 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 he if it would help and if if it, we yeah. tell him he really solved the problem, if that would get the policy changed, that's probably good. Let's I guess. I, I, Let's get the policy changed. If we go on, if, if we if we start talking about this, I'm going to say some unpleasant things. So so I, I probably, on that topic, I probably won't disagree with you. All right. Um, also, uh, last Friday, uh, Judge Brinkema in the Al Shamari Abu Ghraib torture case denied from the bench Khaki's renewed motion to dismiss based on Jesner. Um, just to sort of expand that out, um, the Supreme Court in April in Jesner versus Arab Bank held that the alien tort statute cannot be used to sue foreign corporate defendants. Um, Khaki, which is a domestic military contractor, 
argued that the analysis of Justice Kennedy's majority opinion actually went broader and suggested that courts need to adopt something like a Bivens special factors analysis to alien tort claims, and that even though they are not a foreign corporate defendant, the same kinds of considerations that led the court to reject ATS suits against foreign corporate defendants should also reject claims against domestic defendants for torts that take place in a foreign battlefield. So it wasn't corporation-specific? It wasn't quite. No, it was yeah. it was it was foreign yeah. theater of war specific. Right. I was about to make a cutting remark, but what's, instead, what's oh, the, just, you know, like it's going to be some kind of corporate exceptionalism, like corporations get the break. But you're saying it was the it was, it connectivity was to the foreign battlefield. Yeah. Got it. And Judge Brinkema ruled from the bench and basically said, "You've got to be kidding me! Like this is the 14th time we've we've we had a motion to dismiss in this case." You know, <laughs> it is funny. I mean, it just keeps going on. That case is quite a sustaining member itself. Well, but, but Judge Brinkema said, "I mean, I haven't seen the transcript yet, but as reported by folks who are in the courtroom, Judge Brinkema apparently said, you know, my marching orders from the Fourth Circuit are to get this case moving yeah. and to get this case to judgment so that whatever happens can be appealed as a matter of finality." Hey, there's a, there's a posture for a court to take. I have been a huge fan of Leonie Brinkema's for as long as I've known her um, and think that she is the exact right judge you want. That that her attitude and her approach and her sort of view of her job as a judge is what is missing in way too many of those other cases. No, including several of the ones we talk about this week and every week. Yes. But Um, that's probably enough talking this week. We want to just close out with the Quick SCOTUS update. Yeah. There's not – oh, there are a few things. So we've already noted – we do not yet have the Carpenter decision. We don't have the travel ban decision. We sure don't have the Dalmazi decision. No Dalmazi. But there are other things afoot. And real quick notes on those. So two quick things. First, on Monday, the government filed a very, very strange application for a partial stay of the nationwide injunction issued by a federal judge in Chicago against Attorney General Sessions' um, anti-sanctuary city uh, ban. Right. That basically, um, the Attorney General had imposed three conditions on grant recipients who were so-called sanctuary jurisdictions. Um, and the district court had said two of those were unlawful, that they two of those were inconsistent with his statutory authority and had enjoined him from enforcing those conditions on a nationwide basis. Um, the government appealed to the Seventh Circuit. The Seventh Circuit affirmed the injunction unanimously, um, but the panel divided as to whether it should be a nationwide injunction. So all three judges said, yes, government, you should lose. Um, but Judge Mannion dissented on whether they should just lose within the D- Northern District of Illinois. The government then went to the Seventh Circuit, not on the merits, but just on the nationwide scope of the injunction, and said, all we're, all we're asking for rehearing on Bank of is the scope of the injunction, which, by the way, is a weird look. Like, we're not arguing that you're wrong. We're just arguing that the injunction is too broad. Yeah, but, you know, as, as you definitely know, the uh, the nationwide injunction issue has become such well, a no, So topic. this is why this is interesting, because clearly this is the case that the Justice Department has identified as yeah. the one they want to use to resolve the nationwide injunction issue. Um, now, there's a question about what is the irreparable harm in, like, what are you, you, you're arguing that you want to be able to not comply with the injunction in other parts of the country? I mean, well, that, yeah, like, do we want, the, right? But that's, that seems like, it's a weird, listen, it's weird to say we're not challenging the Seventh Circuit decision that we're wrong on the merits, but we want to right. be able no, to I, it, sure. it looks, cloud it in other jurisdictions. It looks stronger if you can say, like, this is a wrong decision. We're challenging here, that's and we do not I'm want to be bound weird, by it That's one thing that's a weird look. Yeah, yeah. I anyway, agree. but so all this to say, it seems to me that this case, and not the travel ban, maybe not even DACA, 
is going to be the nationwide injunction referendum case. Paging Sam Bray. Indeed. Paging Sam Bray. All right. Um, one other note. We on Friday filed a cert petition. We being I, like <laughs> me, um, and a few other folks, including our friend Leah Littman from UC Irvine, filed a cert petition on Friday in the Hernandez case. This is the cross-border shooting case. Supreme Court sort of decided last year, sent back to the Fifth Circuit. This is on. This is a seeking review of the Fifth Circuit's March on Bonk decision saying no Bivens. Right. This is a big case. I think so. I I think so. Um, (laughs) But the cert petition basically asks two questions. One, I'm just going to read them, Um, right? Whether when plaintiffs plausibly allege, there's plausibility again, that a rogue federal law enforcement officer violated clearly established Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights for which there's no alternative legal remedy. No, we're saying that's what we allege, right? Whether or not that's true, we'll leave for later. Um, The federal courts can and should recognize a damages claim under Bivens. Two, if not, and this is where I think we're raising a question the Supreme Court hasn't considered before, whether the Westfall Act violates the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment insofar as it preempts state law tort suits for damages against rogue federal law enforcement officers acting within the scope of their employment for which there's no alternative legal remedy. So basically, dear Supreme Court, do you really mean that there are no remedies when Border Patrol agents kill people without without justification? This is potentially going to be another argument for you? Uh, If they grant. Um, hey, you can have a busy term. But so, you know, all this is to say, like, now seems like an interesting time to be talking about what the legal remedies are for Customs and Border Patrol agents who may or may not be acting ultra Yeah, the context actually probably is pretty good for your bid for cert, I would think. We'll see. Um, all right. And then, so that's SCOTUS. Uh, SCOTUS is back tomorrow with more decisions. They may also be back Friday. They'll certainly be back on Monday. And when, when Carpenter drops, we'll have tons to say about yep. it and the other ones as well. All right. We've um, said nothing about Trumplandia. You know what? It's kind of nice. Yes. Let's leave. We'll, we'll certainly come back to Space Force. Space Force. Um, Every, I cannot hear that without picturing. Uh, Spaceballs. Well, that's not what I was going to say. <laughs> I was going to say, I think about Lego movie and the space uh, spaceship. Spaceship guy. Uh, we'll come back to that. We'll probably have to come back to the OIG report. Who, who made this man a gunner? Who made this man a gunner? I did, sir. Who are you? Asshole. Major asshole. He's my cousin. How many assholes do we have on this ship? They all raise their hands. <laughs> no, I don't think it's Mel Brooks' finest moment. Oh, are those fighting words? I wish y'all could see the look he's giving me now. <laughs> I'm using so, the Schwartz. I'm using the Schwartz to disagree with you right uh, now. <laughs> all right. We will, we will find another time to talk about the OIG report and why I think the most important headline is that no one is attacking Horowitz's credibility, right? Which for the future OIG reports to come could be a big deal. Okay. And if we really need to... We'll talk about Space Force in some future episode. Space Force, uh, maybe maybe uh, if you ever can break free from your, your parental duties, yeah. which newly expanded, uh, go see Solo. We'll talk ah. about that. Uh, Ocean's I'll, tr- I'll try to see Ocean's 8, and then we can compare notes. Um, and I suspect that our next uh, episode will be very Supreme Court heavy. Man, I hope so. Yeah. All right, so until then, uh, Bobby's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Uh, we are both apparently now fathers of daughters, so you really should <laughs> stay safe out there. And indeed, one of our five daughters is now driving. <laughs> well, not, not licensed driving, training. All right. Training. Well, when you, beware. When Riley gets her, her license, let us know so we can all, you know, <laughs> duck and cover. Stay safe out there. All right. Adios. Bye, y'all.